Hello everyone, okay, continuing on then with Tiff Totally and the Disney Channel shows. Um, next up we have Sunny with a Chance, and that was on from 2009 to 2011, uh, with Demi Lovato, Sterling Knight, Tiffany Thornton, Allison Ashley Arm, Doug Brochu, Brandon Michael Smith, and Genevieve Hanalias. Sunny with a Chance was the first Disney Channel original series to be shot and aired in high def from the beginning. Like most of Disney Channel sitcoms, it is shot on tape but uses a filmized appearance. In the second season, some scenes were shot on location. The series is one of the three Disney Channel original series to feature a show within a show, along with the famous Jet Jackson and Shake It Up. In June 2009, Sunny with a Chance was renewed for a second season, which premiered in March 2010 to 6.3 million viewers. Disney Channel had originally renewed the season for the series for a third season in November 2010, but Lovato's role was uncertain at the time after Lovato checked into treatment for personal struggles two weeks prior. Production of the third season commenced without Lovato in January 2011, focusing on the so random aspect rather than behind the scenes. In 2011, Disney Channel confirmed that Lovato would not be returning to the series' lead role and Sonny with the Chance would not return, choosing instead to rebrand the already-renewed third season as a spinoff titled So Random. The spinoff aired for a single season before being cancelled. So there were two shows within a show from Sonny with the Chance, of course after we just said So Random, um, it was a comedy sketch series that employs most of the main cast. It often causes the cast of Sunny with a Chance to dress in ridiculous costumes and act out nonsensical situations. This was a spin-off to its own series after Lovato's departure. And the next one was Mackenzie Falls. The Enemies of the So Random group, Mackenzie Falls is a tween drama series featuring comedic overacting. The show is similar to Dawson's Creek and Gossip Girl, among others. The show's name, Mackenzie Falls, comes from Chad's character's name and the name of the town, which is located near a waterfall. In the Season 2 episode, The Legend of Candy Face, the cast of So Random made a parody of Mackenzie Falls titled Mackenzie Stalls, which was set in a bathroom. Minisodes and promos can be seen on the Sunny with a Chance website, along with one minisode as a bonus feature on the DVD series. Currently, the most watched episode of the series, A Sunny with a Chance, is Walk a Mile in My Pants, with 6.3 million viewers. The episode, Gassy Passes, is the least watched episode, only scoring 2.9 million viewers. So here's a little bit about Demi's departure and how So Random came to light. Um, it was announced in November of 2010 that the third season would begin production without Lovato due to Lovato's recovering from health issues. Instead, the series focused on the sketch comedy music variety show So Random, centering on guest stars, sketches, digital shorts, and musical performances, a similar format to SNL, but targeted at a much younger audience. Production of the third season began on January 30th, 2011.
In April 2011, People.com reported that Demi Lovato would not be returning for the third season. As a result, the show was renamed So Random and focused on the sketches rather than the behind-the-scenes antics. As a result of Lovato's departure from Sonny with a Chance, the series became the second Disney Channel original series to have its lead actor or actress leave during the series, run after So Weird and the fourth Disney Channel series to have a main cast member leave the series during its run with That So Raven and Jonas also included. The third season was then turned into its own new series based on the new format. So there are a few things um, I found um, on an episode or excuse me on a website called thethings.com Um So, in the life of Demi Lovato, there have been numerous highs and lows. In their personal and professional life, their fans have done their best to stay up to date about everything going on with them. One of the first major projects that brought Demi Lovato into the limelight was Disney Channel's Sunny with a Chance. The Disney Channel show was a big deal at the time, even though it only lasted for two seasons. Demi Lovato needed to stop filming the show before the third season to focus on their recovery and mental health. They knew that should not be spending time in front of a camera when they had to focus on themselves before anything else. Find out some interesting facts and details about their time on Sunny with a Chance. Um, and by the way, this article is not updated um, for Demi's proper pronouns. Um, Demi has said that she goes by they, them, and so I am being respectful of that, and I am, instead of saying she and her, I am saying they and them. Um, you know, I just want to be respectful of that. Um, you know, a lot of people take their pronouns very personally these days, And, you know, I just want to be respectful of what people prefer to be addressed as. And so in respect of Demi and her pronouns, I, whenever I come across their name, if I don't slip, I mean, having a slip up is obviously, it's going to happen. But whenever I come across Demi's name, I will refer to them as they, them. Um, just to put that out there. So anyways, um, a few of these things that I want to read, um, that kind of stood out to me. Um, so Demi left the show after its second season for rehab. When Demi Lovato decided to leave the show, it was so that they could go to rehab to focus on their health and recovery. They were very young and already going through so much in their life in terms of addiction and the struggles that come along with that. Addiction puts such a strain on a person's life, and they were feeling the heaviness of that when they entered rehab. Bridget Mendler auditioned for the role of Sonny. Bridget Mendler is another awesome Disney Channel starlet that we have a lot of respect for. Bridget Mendler auditioned for the role of Sunny but did not end up getting the part. She went on to audition for Good Luck Charlie and was successfully able to snag that one. If she had gotten Sunny with a chance, the show probably would have lasted longer. Good Luck Charlie filmed four seasons in total. 
Sonny's name was going to be Molly. Sonny was almost going to be called Molly. Honestly, that name would have ruined how clever the title of the show is. The title of the show incorporates her name while playing off of the fact that her character wants to get famous, while also playing off the idea that a news reporter is predicting the weather. The show was almost called Sketchpad. Sunny with the Chance was almost called Sketchpad instead. It would not have made a huge difference to viewers if the show had a different name, but we are happy that they went with the name they went with. The title of the show is way more clever and funny than Sketchpad could ever be. Demi Lovato would take naps between scenes on set. Demi was going was going when she was filming Sunny with a chance. They would often sleep between takes on set. They were very young, but she didn't have a lot of energy because they were being spread so thin with so many different obligations surrounding them at all times. And Demi Lovato didn't think it would be healthy for them to film a third season. Demi stopped filming Sunny with the Chance after the second season because they knew it would not be healthy or smart of them to continue putting so much pressure on them on their shoulders. She needed to go to rehab and focus on themselves and their health. She truly made the right call, even if it wasn't an easy one to make. And, you know, I definitely know that that was a time that, you know, really put a strain on Demi's life and also around that time too she was doing Camp Rock and it was just obvious that that was when they were really struggling um and having a difficult time you know with drugs and addiction and and even still she's very very open excuse me they are very very open about um their story um, it is very hard sometimes to remember the pronouns, so I, I announce for a few of the slip-ups, but, you know, it's, it's really, Demi, to me, they are such a powerful and incredible person that it's so, um, in a way, I have so much respect for, um, how open she's been about it, um, even still, um, you know, I used to have my thoughts and my feelings towards Demi, um, during this time of, you know, when she was on Disney Channel, but because she's, uh, they have been so open and honest, it makes me have that much more respect for them, um, and so I can truly appreciate that about Demi, and to this, you know, from this day, I'm, I'm really a huge fan of hers. Okay, so we're going to move on now to, we have a few animated ones coming up here. Uh, the next few shows are going to be animated series. Um, so this one is Gargoyles, um, which was on from 1994 to 1997. Gargoyles was noted for its relatively dark tone, complex story arcs, and melodrama. Character arcs were heavily employed throughout the series, as were Shakespearean themes. The series also received favorable comparisons to Batman, the animated series, and Cyber 6. A video game adaptation and a spin-off comic series were released in 95. 
The show's storyline continued from 2006 to 2009 in a comic book series of the same title, produced by Slave Labor Graphics. The series features a species of nocturnal creatures known as gargoyles that turn to stone during the day, focusing on a clan led by Goliath. In the year 994, the clan lives in a castle in Scotland. Most are betrayed and killed by humans while petrified and the remainder are magically cursed to sleep, example being frozen in stone form until the castle rises above the clouds. A thousand years later, in 94, billionaire David Zanatos purchases the Gargoyles Castle and has it reconstructed atop his New York skyscraper, the Irie Building, thus awakening Goliath and the remainder of his clan. While trying to adjust to their new world, they are aided by a sympathetic police officer named Eliza Maza and quickly come into conflict with the plotting Zanatos. In addition to dealing with the Gargoyles' attempts to adjust to modern New York City, the series also incorporated various supernatural threats to their safety and to the world at large. IGN ranked Gargoyles 45th place on its 2009 list of top 100 animated series, stating a decent success at the time, Gargoyles has maintained a strong cult following since it ended more than a decade ago. Hollywood.com featured it on their 2010 list of six cartoons that should be movies. UGO.com included it on their 2011 top list of legendary medieval and fantasy TV shows. Doug Walker, also known as the Nostalgia Critic, praised the show, but in secret, I would be watching every one of them because it was just that good. I don't know if it really changed anything in terms of kids' shows like Batman or Animaniacs, but it was certainly a welcome detour from what Disney usually did. It really stood on its own and created some really wonderful and really unique stories. Gargoyles is a blast from the past that is sure to live on in the future. Less favorable assessments of the series came from animation producer Bruce Tim, who dismissed Gargoyles as kind of namby-pamby with all that Celtic fantasy crap in a 99 interview, and the animation blog Cartoon Brew, which cited the series as an example of the sort of juvenile mediocrities that are beloved by the nerd community. Gargoyles had a huge cultural impact on its fan community. In 1997, Weissman began answering fan questions about the series in an online forum at Ask Greg, revealing, among other things, productions details about the series, in-universe details about the characters, and his plans for the property if it had not been canceled or if he was able to revive it in the future. Among other revelations, Weissman has detailed spin-offs for the series that reached various stages of development, including Bad Guys, for which the Leaker Reel and comics were produced, Gargoyles 2198, Time Dancer, Pendragon, Dark Ages, and the New Olympians. The Gathering of the Gargoyles was an annual fan convention which began in 97 and ended in 2009. The Gathering featured several regular guests close to the Gargoyles franchise including Greg Weissman and voice actors Keith David and Tom Adcox. 
The gathering has featured several recurring special events such as a radio play where attendees audition and take speaking roles, a masquerade ball where attendees dress up as their favorite character, an art show where the many artists within the fandom can display or sell their artwork. Weissman has in the past shown the leak reel of bad guys at gatherings. Footage and interviews from the 2004 gathering appears as an extra feature on the Season 1 DVD of the show. Convergence 2014 featured a Gargoyles-related theme with many guests from the series including Greg Weissman, Tom Adcox, Marina Surtees, C. Robert Cargill, Scott Lynch, Amy Berg, and Emma Bull. It is a four-day convention held in Bloomington, Minnesota over the 4th of July weekend. It was done to celebrate the series' 20th anniversary. So really, what are gargoyles? So aside from the actual show, I was curious, like, I've heard of gargoyles before, but I never knew much of, like, the history about them, like, what they stood for, you know, how they came about, like why people believe in them, you know, whatever. So on Mental Floss, I did find some facts about gargoyles, like, you know, kind of like their history and their origin. Um, So I thought a few of these would be pretty beneficial. Um, So basically, they conjure images of hideous brooding creatures perched high above the cities and villages of the world. The most terrifying ones look as though they might break from their stone moorings and take flight. But gargoyles, it turns out, are full of surprises. Um, So we're going to read on and learn a little bit about the origin of their name, the very functional purpose, and what makes a gargoyle different from a grotesque. Um, So they serve a practical purpose. When gargoyles began appearing on churches throughout Europe in the 13th century, they served as decorative water spouts engineered to preserve stone walls by diverting the flow of rainwater outward from rooftops. This function, technically speaking, distinguishes gargoyles from other stone beasts like grotesques and bosses, although these days the term encompasses all sorts of decorative creature carvings. The name comes from a dragon-slaying legend. The The word gargoyle derives from the French gargouille, meaning throat. This would appear to take its inspiration from the statue's water siphoning gullets, but in fact, the name comes from the French legend of Le Gargoyle, a fearsome dragon that terrorized the inhabitants of the town of Rouen. For centuries, according to the story, the dragon swallowed up ships and flooded the town until around 600 BCE, when a priest named Romanus came along and agreed to vanquish the beast in exchange for the townspeople's conversion to Christianity. Romanus tamed the dragon by making the sign of the cross, then led it into town where it was burned at the stake. The creature's head, however, wouldn't burn, so the townspeople cut it off and affixed it to their church. Their gargouille's head became a ward against evil and a warning to other dragons. They were meant to inspire fear in parishioners. 
Because most medieval Europeans were illiterate, the clergy needed visual representations of the horrors of hell to drive people to the sanctuary of the church. Placing gargoyles on the building's exterior reinforced the idea that evil dwelt outside the church while salvation dwelt within. How better to enforce church attendance and docility than by providing a daily reminder of the horrors to come, wrote Gary Varner in his book, Gargoyles, Grotesques, and Green Men, Ancient Symbolism in European and American Architecture. They also brought pagans to church. Churches would also model gargoyles after the creatures worshipped by pagan tribes, thinking this would make their houses of worship appear more welcoming to them. It was a bit of clever marketing that worked, according to scholar Darlene Truechrist. Churches grew in number and influences the pagan belief system, and many of its images were absorbed into Christianity, she wrote in American Gargoyles, Spirits in Stone. And Pittsburgh is a hotbed for gargoyles. In the 19th century, the Steel City embraced the Gothic architecture revival that swept across America. Many of its Gothic churches, government buildings, and other edifices remain, along with their iconic gargoyles. All told, Pittsburgh features more than 20 authentic gargoyles and hundreds of grotesques. Many of them are featured in the city's downtown Dragons Tour run by the History and Landmarks Foundation. So there you have it. So I guess gargoyles are a bit of a medieval kind of thing, but they're not necessarily a monster. Like I would would have thought of them to be like a monster, some kind of evil, kind of like they remind me of like, depending on what one of them looks like, it kind of reminds me of like an ogre or like the Incredible Hulk type thing. Um, but they're actually not really evil. It's They're really um, more like a religious symbol. So I guess in a way, the gargoyles aren't what we would think them to be. So that was um, very interesting for me to find out. Um, I never heard of gargoyles, um, the TV show anyway. And like I said, I never knew much about gargoyles. So it was really, I really actually enjoyed kind of reading a little bit about their history, um, especially to learn like the religious impact that they had amongst Christians and pagans even and in churches. Okay, next up, we're going to move on to the world of Phineas and Ferb. And Phineas and Ferb was on from 2007 to 2015. The program follows Phineas Flynn and his stepbrother, Ferb Fletcher, who were between 8 and 10 years old on summer vacation. Every day, the boys embark on some grand new project. These are usually unrealistic given the protagonist's ages and are sometimes downright physically impossible, which annoys their controlling older sister, Candace, who frequently tries to reveal their shenanigans to her and Phineas's mother, Linda Flynn Fletcher, and less frequently to Ferb's father, Lawrence Fletcher. The series follows a standard plot system, running gags occur in every episode, and the subplot almost always features Phineas and Ferb's 
pet platypus Perry the Platypus, working as a spy named Agent P for OWCA, the Organization Without a Cool acronym, to defeat the latest scheme of Dr. Heinz Doofenshmirtz, a mad scientist driven largely by a need to assert his evilness, although he is not especially evil and has a good heart in some situations. The two plots intersect at the end to erase all traces of the boys' project just before Candace can show it to their mother. This usually leaves Candace very frustrated. Pavanmeyer and Marsh had previously worked together on Fox's The Simpsons and Nickelodeon's Rocco's Modern Life. The creators also voiced two of the main B-plot characters, Dr. Doofenshmirtz and Major Monogram. Phineas and Ferb was conceived after Pavanmeyer sketched a triangular boy, the prototype for Phineas, in a restaurant. Pavanmeyer and Marsh developed the series concept together and pitched it to networks for 16 years before securing a run on Disney Channel. The show follows the adventures of stepbrothers Phineas Flynn and Ferb Fletcher, who live in the fictional city of Danville in an unspecified tri-state area as they seek ways to occupy their time during summer vacation. Often these adventures involve elaborate, life-size, and ostensibly dangerous construction projects. Phineas's older sister Candace Flynn has two obsessions exposing Phineas and Ferb's schemes and ideas, and winning the attention of a boy named Jeremy. Meanwhile, the boy's pet platypus Perry acts as a secret agent for all animal government organization called the ALCA, Organization Without a Cool Acronym, fighting Dr. Heinz Doofenshmirtz. Much of the series' humor relies on running gags used in almost every episode with slight variation. Most episodes follow a pattern. Some incident gives Phineas an idea for a project, and he announces, Hey, Ferb, I know what we're going to do today. Meanwhile, Perry slips away, using one of many hidden tunnels to a secret underground base. Phineas, or occasionally another character, remarks, Hey, where's Perry? Major Monogram briefs Perry, whom he calls Agent P, on his mission. This sometimes amounts to nothing more than Dr. Doofenshmirtz is up to something, Find out what it is and put a stop to it. Candace sees what the boys are doing and resolves to expose the project to her mother to get the boys in trouble. Perry breaks into the skyscraper office of Doofenshmirtz Evil Inc., complete with its own easy listening jingle and variations depending on location and time. Doofenshmirtz traps Perry and explains his current evil plan. Perry escapes the trap and they battle. Phineas and Ferb complete their project. Mom gets home and Candace thinks that, at last, Mom will see what the boys have been up to and believe her. But just as Mom is about to step into the backyard, all evidence vanishes, usually as a side effect of Doofenshmirtz's device. Doofenshmirtz, foiled again, cries out, Curse you, Perry the Platypus! Certain aspects of the show's humor are aimed at adults, including its frequent pop culture references. Co-creator Dan Pavanmeyer, who had previously worked on Family Guy, sought to create a less raunchy show that would make similar use of comic timing, meta-humor, humorous blank stares, wordplay, and breaking the fourth wall. 
Pavenmeyer describes the show as a combination of Family Guy and SpongeBob SquarePants. Co-creator Jeff Swampy Marsh has said that the show was not created exclusively for children. He simply did not exclude them as an audience. Dan Pavemeyer attributes the show's genesis to his childhood in Mobile, Alabama, where his mother told him to never waste a day of summer. To occupy himself, Pavemeyer undertook projects such as hole digging and home movie making. Pavenmeyer recalled, my mom let me drape black material all the way across one end of our living room to use as a space field. I would hang little models of spaceships for these little movies I made with a Super 8 camera. He was an artistic prodigy and displayed his very detailed drawings at art shows. Marsh was raised in a large blended family. As with Pavemeyer, Marsh spent his summers exploring and taking part in various activities to have fun. While attending the University of Southern California, Pavemeyer started a daily comic strip called Life is a Fish and received money from the sale of its related merchandise. He eventually dropped out and started drawing people on street corners to make a living until he was finally called by Tommy Chong to work on a short bit of animation in the film Far Out Man. Pavemeyer began to take up animation professionally, working on shows such as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Marsh had become a vice president of sales and marketing for a computer company until he freaked out and decided to quit. His friend helped him put together a portfolio and enter the animation business. Pavenmeyer and Marsh started working across from each other as layout artists on The Simpsons. The two bonded over mutual taste in humor and music, becoming fast friends. They continued their working relationship as a writing team on the Nickelodeon series Rocco's Modern Life, where they conceived the idea for their own series. While eating dinner at a wild-time restaurant in South Pasadena, Pavenmeyer drew a quick sketch of a triangle kid on butcher paper. He tore it out and called Marsh that night to report, Hey, I think we have our show. The triangle doodle sparked rapid development of characters and designs. Pavenmeyer decided that his sketch looked like a Phineas and named Ferb after a friend who owns more tools than anyone in the world. The creators based their character designs on angular shapes in homage to MGM and Warner Brothers animator-director Tex Avery, adding geometric shapes to the backgrounds for continuity. So there's a few things you may not know about Phineas and Ferb according to Screen Rant. In their 104 days of summer vacation, the eponymous stepbrothers and Phineas and Ferb built a variety of high-concept contraptions and devices. If it's possible in cartoon logic, as almost anything is, the show probably did it. From 2007 to 2015, creators Dan Pavenmeyer and Jeff Swampy Marsh set the boys on countless thrilling adventures. There was a link to 30 Rock. Since animation as an art form relies on the actors' voices rather than their faces, it is a common occurrence that fans are surprised to learn that an actor they have seen before is also the voice of a familiar cartoon character. This is especially likely given some natural talents who are able to alter their speaking voice for a part. 
In this case, fans of 30 Rock may have been unaware that two regular cast members also starred on Phineas and Ferb. Actor-comedian Jack McBrayer, who played Kenneth Allen Parcel on 30 Rock, provided the voice of Irving, Phineas and Ferb's number one fan. Meanwhile, Malik Pancoli, also known as Jonathan on 30 Rock, played the regular role of Baljeet Tinder on Phineas and Ferb. The young voice cast were familiar faces to the audience. While many animated programs rely on seasoned voice actors to play kid parts, Phineas and Ferb had a degree of authenticity by having young actors playing characters only slightly, slightly younger than themselves. In addition, they were each well-established with a familiar voice, but perhaps not a recognizable voice if that was the only component available. At the time of Phineas and Ferb's premiere, Vincent Martella, Phineas, was starring as Greg on Everybody Hates Chris. Thomas Brody Sangster, who's voiced Ferb, was known for Love Actually and Nanny McPhee. Ashley Tisdale, Candace, and Mitchell Musso, Jeremy, were Disney Channel veterans, with the former appearing in The Sweet Life of Zach and Cody and High School Musical. Allison Stoner, Isabella, had appeared in a variety of children's programming, including Sweet Life, Drake and Josh, and That's So Raven, as well as the Cheaper by the Dozen film series. It took 13 years to sell and 15 years to make Phineas and Ferb. While Phineas and Ferb did not hit Disney airwaves until 2007, the idea existed in the minds of Pavanmeyer and Marsh for much longer. Conceiving the idea as a way to work together uninterrupted, their concept was frequently rejected due to its complex nature. Eventually, their persistence paid off. Over a decade after originally creating the series, Disney picked it up. On top of that, it took a further two years for the show to be ready for production. With the cast stories, drawings, and music in place, the rest, as they say, is history. And the Rocky Horror Picture Show plays a big role. Some of the Disney viewers may not be aware of Rocky Horror Picture Show, created by and starring Richard O'Brien. It has been both a feature film and stage play, and it is most definitely not for kids. Yet, much of the main cast has appeared in Phineas and Ferb, an animated series. Creator Richard O'Brien has a recurring role as Lawrence Fletcher, the boy's father. Tim Curry, Dr. Frankenfurter, plays various characters including Worthington Dubois and Dr. Lloyd Wexler. Barry Bostwick, Brad Majors, plays Clyde Flynn, maternal grandfather and father-in-law to O'Brien's Lawrence Fletcher. And so there you have it on Phineas and Ferb. And there's also um, a couple of movies on... Uh, that I noticed that are on Disney Plus that have been on my watch list for forever and I still haven't gotten to them. I watched like some episodes of Phineas and Ferb, you know, back in the day and I loved it. It's just, you know, it was like off and on and in between like so many other shows and in between having cable and not having cable. 
So, um, you know, and I always say, okay, I want to start Phineas and Ferb. I always say that for like what I want to watch next on Disney Plus, but then a new series comes out. I've been working on The Simpsons like for forever, and it is going to take me forever to get through 30-something seasons of The Simpsons. So, you know, I definitely for sure am going to put Phineas and Ferb on my list. It's just a matter of when I get to it, like I say about so many shows. So much to watch, so little time. So next, let's talk about Recess. Um, a show that I know a lot of my friends loved. I have never seen it. Um, but again, on my list of to be watched, just when I'll get to it, don't know. But Recess ran from 1997 to 2001, and it's an American animated television series created by Paul Germain and Joe Ansula Birhe, credited as Paul and Joe, and produced by Walt Disney Television Animation with animation done by Grimson Anavision, Plus One Animation, Sunwoo Animation, and Toon City. The series focuses on six elementary school students and their interaction with other classmates and teachers. The title refers to the recess period during the daily schedule in the North American tradition of educational schooling when students are not in lessons and are outside in the schoolyard. During recess, the children form their own society complete with government and a class structure set against the backdrop of a regular school. Recess premiered on September 13, 1997 on ABC as part of Disney's One Saturday Morning Block, later known as ABC Kids. The series ended on November 5, 2001 with 65 half-hour episodes and six seasons in total. The success and lasting appeal of the series saw it being syndicated to numerous channels, including ABC's sister channels Toon Disney, which later became Disney XD and Disney Channel. In 2001, Walt Disney Pictures released a theatrical film based on the series Recess Schools Out. It was followed by a direct-to-video second film entitled Recess Christmas Miracle on 3rd Street that same year. In 2003, two more direct-to-video films were released, Recess All Grow Down and Recess Taking the Fifth Grade. The characters also made an appearance in a 2006 episode of Lilo and Stitch, the series. Television critics Alan Sepinwall and Matt Zoller-Seats wrote favorably about Recess in their 2016 book, TV, The Book, stating that the series is easily one of the smartest, most prankishly playful adult cartoons ever passed off as children's entertainment. Recess is a highly ritualized bit of entertainment that strikes the same notes over and over again but always an infinite variation and with a surprising eye for psychological grace notes, especially when characters you thought of as brusque and one-dimensional reveal their fears and dreams to one another. Um, so on throwbacks, there are seven facts you didn't know about Recess that will make you say scandalous. Recess is one of the best cartoons that has ever been made. Sure, it was fun for kids to watch, but there was actually a lot more going on in this little cartoon than anyone actually noticed. 
The show started back in 97 and quickly it became one of the most important shows for us to watch. There was just something about these outcasts trying to fit into their school that felt very real. The characters all felt so familiar to us and we could relate to at least one of them. Whether you were more like the leader of the group, TJ, the tough but lovable Spinelli, or the quiet and anxiety-ridden Gus, there was a character for everyone. Fitting in wasn't always easy in school, but Recess was able to point out a lot of stuff we were all going through and help us feel a little less alone. Here are seven things you didn't know about the hit Disney show Recess. They actually used kids for voices. Unlike most other cartoons, the voices of the kids were actually children. The only character who wasn't was Spinelli, but obviously that's fine because she was perfect the way she was. Gretchen was technically in the Avengers. It was just for a minute, but the actress who voiced Gretchen in Recess played the waitress in the Avengers, so Gretchen got up close and personal with Captain America. What a lucky lady. Blossom was on the show. Maya Mbalik actually plays Cursed of the Worst. She is featured in a few episodes, including the one where TJ gives out joke Valentine's. These aren't the only crazy facts about the show. There is a Disney crossover that no one noticed. Owl from Winnie the Pooh appears in an episode when the kids are on the schoolyard at night. Principal Prickly was based on a real person. He is supposed to look like Gene Shalit, the movie critic. The gang originally looked a lot different. It's pretty normal for cartoon characters to change a little bit over time, but most of the characters went through a dramatic shift after the pilot, all except Mikey, who only got a new pair of shoes. The show is a lot deeper than a lot of kids really understood. Looking at the cliques of school isn't always all that new, but the way they did it was totally one of a kind. There was a literal throne on the playground with an actual king. The way they represented the groups always resonated with kids more than other shows, probably because each character seemed to be well-rounded and have this good backstory and wasn't just a stereotype that needed to get filled. The show was pretty important for a lot of us who grew up in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, so I guess like what I could say about Recess is to me is like, even though I've never seen it, it seems like it would, it feels so real. Like it doesn't feel like you, I don't, I don't look at it like as an animated series. Like that might sound weird to say, but like. I see the show like as if it were a live action thing kind of show like with actual real people I feel like it would make just as much sense like it works as a cartoon but it would make just as much sense if it were like played with actual characters and I feel like it could be more relatable in that sense but yeah um it worked so well as a cartoon as well okay next animated series we have is Pepper Ann from 1997 to 2000 
Pepper Ann is an American animated television series created by Sue Rose and it aired on Disney's One Saturday Morning on ABC. It debuted in September of 97 and ended in November of 2000. Pepper Ann was the first Disney animated television series to be created by a woman. Tom Warburton, who later created Cartoon Network's codename Kids Next Door, served as the lead character designer for the series. Pepper Ann focuses the trials and tribulations that occur during the titular character's adolescence and charts her ups and downs at Hazelnut Middle School. It aired as part of the Disney's One Saturday Morning block. The character originated in a comic strip published in YM Magazine. During the first four episodes of season one, at the end of the opening sequence, Pepper Ann finds five bucks underneath her desk. From episode five onward, this was changed so that she found a different item every episode, similar to the Simpsons couch gag. Um, here's an article I found on HuffPost that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, 20 years later, what Pepper Ann taught us about gender and tween girls. The cartoon stereotype busting heroin was one in a million. The world is burning, yes, but let's take a moment to consider Pepper Ann, a 90s cartoon that featured one of the most dynamic portrayals of adolescence on television. Nearly 20 years ago, the red-headed tween, who was much too cool for 7th grade, entered the pantheon of Saturday morning tunes. It was quite unlike any other cartoon at the time, a progenitor of the quirky preteen heroine of shows like As Told by Ginger and Lizzie McGuire. The show debuted in 97, the brainchild of executive producer Sue Rose and her nearly all-female team that included director Sherry Pollack and head writer Nan Chaka Khan. It centered on Pepper Ann Pearson, a spunky 12-year-old who loved pizza, soccer, comic books, and video games. Pepper Ann was aggressive, bossy, loud, and unladylike, but her consistent quest to be cool and conform never compromised these supposedly unfeminine traits. Her best friend Nikki was soft-spoken and wildly intelligent, while her best friend Milo, a native Hawaiian boy, was artistic and sensitive. Her little sister Moose was a wise-beyond-her-years eight-year-old who was decidedly gender-ambiguous, her masculinity is never picked at or prodded. Meanwhile, Pepper Ann's mother, Lydia, was a hard-working single mother, an outspoken, self-professed feminist who is consistently trying to instill in her two daughters a sense of independence and self-acceptance. Characters like these may be a dime a dozen today, but it's important to remember that most cartoons in the 90s centered on male characters, whether human or anthropomorphic, and focused on male stories. And when there were female characters, a la Garfield or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, these characters often went by the Smurfette principle, the trope of including women as tokens who exist solely to support the storylines of male leads. Pepper Ann was something different, a show chock full of female characters who, by the standards of a half-hour Saturday cartoon, were afforded an enormous amount of complexity. In one season two episode, Pepper Ann's mother took her on a retreat to a feminist camp where, some exaggerated feminist characters aside, 
Pepper Ann got to learn about the glass ceiling, reflect on her own womanhood, and catch a glimpse into her mother's perspective by hearing from her mom's generation. The show was not necessarily a radical or revolutionary treatise on feminism or gender identity, but it was special. That specialness was being recognized even upon its debut. A 97 Variety article lauded it as part of a new school of girl power tunes on television that included Daria and the Legend of Calamity Jane. Rose, the executive producer, told the publication at the time, good, smart, funny shows with girl characters are something everyone can embrace. Pepper Ann is a kid who who happens to be a girl. Gender doesn't have to enter into it. In an ideological paradise, gender really wouldn't have to enter into it, but gender was such a huge part of what made Pepper Ann work. Pepper Ann's love of pizza, video games, and soccer was not what made her interesting. What made her interesting was that she inhabited a world in which young people were allowed and encouraged to embrace the excuse me, multiplicities of their identities. Pepper Ann's tomboyishness did not make her stand out. What made her stand out was her heart, her love for her friends, her constant struggle between trying to conform and trying to be herself, and the space that was made for her and the young audience to explore all these things without judgment. The place of the tween girl group in pop culture is a difficult one. Young girls are patronized and condescended to. They're fetished and defied either for their sexuality or for this false and potentially harmful idea that teen girls will save us all. No, teen girls will be and feel and do whatever they want. Nostalgia has <clears throat> has a way of becoming all the more potent when the present seems particularly bleak. Today, there are tween heroines on Nickelodeon and Disney that encompass much of what made shows like Pepper Ann special. Disney's show Andy Mack, which chronicles an Asian-American seventh grader coming to terms with the fact that her sister is actually her mother, you read that right, comes to mind. There's progress. There are indeed teen and tween characters who have taken the spirit of this underrated 90s cartoon and expanded on its themes, but given that Pepper Ann existed in a pre-internet time devoid of buzzwords and online discourse about feminism and representation, it's fascinating that it existed the way it did or at all. And maybe that's something today's television landscape for young girls can take away from it. The fact that these characters can and should challenge gender stereotypes, not just for the sake of challenging them, but for the sake of being their authentic selves. And I have never heard of Pepper Ann. Um, A friend um, had suggested it when I said, like, okay, what were some of your favorite Disney shows? You know, when I asked, like, all of you out in the community, and she said Pepper Ann was one that she remembers watching, and I had never heard of it. But it kind of gives me, like, um, Disney's As Told by Ginger vibes. Um, And it sounds like one of those shows, even whether it's a cartoon or even something that be portrayed by an actual person, is one of those shows that can like show you how it's okay to be who you are and do whatever you want and how girls can be 
just like boys and vice versa. Um, so I kind of like the message that Pepper Ann seems to portray um, to viewers. And though it's not a show that's easily to find to watch, hopefully one day it will be because I really feel like it's an important show that many people really could learn from and even still enjoy today whether you watched it back in the 90s or not.